Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The premed year, session number 317. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome back to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray. And in the pre-med years, we have great discussions with students, with faculty members, and with people like our guest today, Kathleen, who is an expert in helping students learn how to study better. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what you should be doing before class, during class, after class, and so much more. So I hope you are looking forward to this discussion. If you are struggling with your grades, if you're struggling with studying, learning how to cram it all in We'll hopefully have some tips for you that you can take and that you can apply to your studying. Stay tuned to the end where we will talk about how you can win some copies of Kathleen's book. Kathleen, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much, Ryan, for inviting me and for the service you provide for students. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you. And and you provide an amazing service for students, helping students kind of figure out their study habits, their study techniques to help them get better grades, hopefully. And mm-hmm. and uh, especially for my audience, get better grades, get a better MCAT score and get into medical school. So let's start with who you are and, and how you ended up helping students with their study habits. Okay, well, it actually started back in 1988. I was hired to work at UT Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas to work with the medical students there in their Office of Academic Advising. And I had just finished my master's program at a shiny new degree, and I had spent a lot of time looking at reading strategies and how students learn to read and how you can be a better reader. And it just so happens that uh, at that point in time, medical students were being required to read about a thousand pages a week. You might might remember these days. (sighs) 
And uh, it's actually only increased since then. And so reading was one of the things that I looked at was how could you be a more efficient reader? Uh, how could you remember all the stuff that you're having to read? And I just happened to be hired by this wonderful woman named Eugenia Kelman, who became my co-author and my mentor and a really good friend. And uh, together, we put together an entire system for these med students to be really effective and really efficient in their study strategies. How is it humanly possible to read that much? <laughs> well, the secret is that you're probably not going to read every single word. And what we've started talking about it as uh, one of the strategies is you read to make notes. You're going to be actually uh, extracting material from the textbook to make your own set of notes of information that you don't know. A lot of students uh, find it more comfortable to spend time on information they do know, but if you already know it, then obviously you don't <laughs> need to spend as much time on it, right? But it makes and us so, feel good that we know it already. It does, I know, and you take it out and you pet it and you go, oh, I know this, you're so beautiful. <laughs> I'm amazing, um, I'm gonna get an A. Right, <laughs> and then, um, so it is a hard shift for students, and I've had students tell me, but it hurts. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but this is going to be a more efficient use of your time. if You will you can take it out, and you can pet it and feel good about it, but then you need to put it away and spend more time on the information you don't know. For somebody who is studying material for the first time, wouldn't they not know everything? How, how are they supposed to figure out what they do and don't know as they're preparing to read all of this stuff? Oh, that is such a great question, Ryan. And the answer actually has been done in research. Uh, the short answer is you self-test. And the research behind that is called the testing effect. And what they found is that if you will self-test, it actually helps you remember more of the information. And then that way, you know where to be spending your time. How, how does one self-test? What does that mean? Uh, well, it can mean a, a number of different things. If you have review books that you're going to need in the future, either for step one or for MCAT, you can be self-testing from that. Or if you have a good set of notes, the way we teach students to make notes makes it really easy to self-test from those notes. And um, so you self-test to know what you do and you don't know. How does one find information? I, I, I really want to drive home this self-test thing because I think I've heard it before. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a chemistry professor on mm -hmm. the podcast a while ago talking about study habits. And that was one thing I think trying to remember that conversation was she talked a lot about is going through the the books, the, the, text, mm -hmm. the textbooks and actually using those practice questions to help drive right. a lot of your studying. So if if a student is studying a a textbook that doesn't have questions to be able to test, what would you recommend they do to be able to test themselves? Uh, a lot of the students are already using these resources like Clutch Prep or mm -hmm. Khan Academy, uh, Chegs. I think those are probably some of the big ones. Okay. And they often have questions that you can use and most students don't do that. And so it's going to be a shift in the way they uh, think about preparing but it's a really good shift because it pays off in efficiencies. So clutch prep and, and those other resources for somebody who might not know is more like QBanks, more uh, flashcard maybe potentially based systems to test your, your knowledge before you even start going into it, right? Exactly right. And so and for that, you've got Quizlet and Anki too. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the, all great resources and and way underutilized, I think, for for students because e- even for MCAT prep for pre med students, the the biggest mistake they make is they don't do enough practice tests to do the tests to be able to understand where their strengths and weaknesses are, so they exactly. can focus on those weaknesses. They exactly. just read content, thinking I'm just going to play it safe. I, I don't want to call myself out and and do poorly mm-hmm. on it on a test. And so I'm just going to read and read and read and read and read and I'll get to test day and I'll be fine. Exactly. Exactly. They think if they do enough content and the way I like to think of that is uh, reading and reviewing is putting information in your brain, but the uh, exams aren't really testing what's in your brain. They're testing what you can pull out of your brain. So that's where the self-testing, taking lots of practice tests, doing those questions you practice the opposite, and that's where you're practicing pulling it out of your brain. They call it retrieval practice. Mm, that's an interesting way to put it. It's definitely, mm-hmm. it's definitely much harder to to <laughs> ha- fire those synapses to go. Okay, I I, I fired certain synapses to to store it in there, mm-hmm. and then different synapses need to fire to get it out, and exactly. and those synapses are still sleeping during test day. Exactly. Or just underutilized. You hadn't worked them enough. They didn't know what to do to yeah, wake up and pull the information back out for you. Or if you even if you did, maybe not in a timely manner, right? Like you thought of it after you left the testing room. So you've worked with medical students at UTMB, helping them try to figure this out. What was that process like going to them saying, okay, let's, let's test some new things. Let's try to help you learn these these new study habits. And I'm assuming they're going to go and, and look at you like you have a third head saying, I don't have time to learn how to learn. I just need to learn. Right, exactly. Well, we did something that in retrospect um, sounds a little cruel, but it was actually really effective. And that is we waited until after the first round of exams to offer the workshop on study <laughs> strategies. You see where I'm going with this, I right? I see exactly <laughs> yeah. where you're going with it. So after they made perhaps a C or lower for the first time in their entire lives, then uh, we literally had students like lined up out the door (laughs) to come to the workshop to see what they could do to improve. Yeah. And so they they needed the proof that they needed help before they, they would seek it. Right, exactly. Interesting. But these are, these are medical students. These are supposed to be the cream of the crop. Why do you think it was so hard for them in this new level of learning? Uh, most of these students are, are going to be cream of the crop, high school students coming into college doing very well still. And now all mm-hmm. of a sudden medical school hits them like a ton of bricks. What What is that switch for them? Um, I think that what they have been relying on that has stood them in good stead until that point in time is their native intelligence. Some students call it brute force intelligence, that they uh, can use the strategies that they've always used and they work. And then they hit professional school, med school in particular, and find out that the pace and the volume are something they have never experienced before. And this is where the efficiencies need to come in. So the majority of people listening to this podcast are going to be pre-med students. And they're listening uh-huh. to this going, oh, I'm not in medical school yet. I don't need to worry about this yet. I'll I'll come back and listen to this later. Mm-hmm. What, what should a pre-med student be thinking about in, in this part of their journey so that maybe come medical school, they already have the skills and techniques and, and proper study habits. That's exactly what I would say. 
uh, it, depending on where you are in your pre-med journey, you could get a one, two, three, or four-year head start and have these study strategies just be a natural part of how you study. In fact, I had a senior in college a few years ago, so I'd taught her for a number of years. She had learned these study strategies, this entire system, and she said she saw some freshmen studying one day in the library and walked up to them and said, you're studying wrong. Here, let me show you how. Because <laughs> she completely internalized these strategies, and they were hers now, and mm -hmm. she's now a third-year med student. Yeah. So let's talk about those strategies. What for for a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, college student out there, let's walk through your system of how you get somebody on the right track. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of different frameworks. And one of them is we talk about time management, which is how you spend your time while you're awake. And mind management, which is all the thoughts that are going through your head. And then body management, which is how you take care of yourself, sleep, nutrition, that type of thing, okay? And uh, within the time management part, that's where the what we call the learning process flowchart comes in. We teach students how to prepare before they go to lecture. And then we teach them what to do with the information in the lecture and in their textbooks. And then we teach them how to review and self-test. And that used to be the last stage, but we've added in another stage where we teach them how to score and analyze their self-tests. So whenever they walk into a classroom exam or um, an entrance exam, they know that they know the information. So a student has an hour-long lecture coming up. How much time are they putting in before that lecture to to pre-read and do all this stuff that you recommend? Well, that completely depends on what approach they want to take. So we have uh, three different approaches that they can take, and I call them good, better, and best. And good is you just take 10 minutes and look over the material before you go in, so at least you're familiar with the vocabulary words, because mm -hmm. that's going to help a lot during lecture. Better is whenever you go ahead and do your quick pre-read, but then go back and read the chapter. And of course, that's going to give you even more information. And then I, there are a few students that I've met who actually go for and do the best. And that is you pre-read, you go back and read, you've made notes before you go to class. Class then becomes a review of the information instead of an introduction. You walk out of class with a complete set of notes, and then you go on to the next topic. Now, a lot of schools, it seems, are moving to this sort of framework where they expect the students to do this pre-read. They expect the students to learn the material outside of the classroom. And then the classroom is for discussing and asking questions mm -hmm. and follow-up and actually flushing out the material, uh, the, the flipped classroom as it's known. Right. Is that kind of what you're setting up for students who aren't in a flipped classroom setting? Actually, it is. It works really well in that setting, too, because as we've already talked about, whenever you get to the higher levels in education, more and more of the learning is put back on the learner. And again, with their native intelligence, students can do really well, but often they are working harder than they have to and getting way stressed out, not getting the sleep they need. And I can help them um, get everything done that they need to get done without harming themselves, you know, from lack of sleep and 
that type of thing. Yeah. So a student is doing all this stuff pre uh, pre classroom. They're going into the classroom. They're hopefully have this knowledge beforehand and are, are reviewing based on what the lecture is going over. What are the next steps after uh, either being in the classroom or after that class? Uh, it depends on how much you did before class as to how much you're going to do after class. Uh, I want to tell you a quick story about a student who uh, took this to a whole nother level um, because, um, as you know, of course, um, working together in groups and teams is becoming uh, more and more popular in educational setting in order to prepare students for teamwork in their professional setting. And I had one student who got hold of my book and on his very own uh, went through the whole book before his freshman year started in college, and he wasn't satisfied with just knowing the information for himself. So he would pre-read, but then he would get together his group of friends who were in the same class as he was, and he would teach the information that he had already learned to them. So then everybody went to class prepared, and so they were engaged, they asked good questions, they got to feel smart, and it really saved the work they had to do afterwards because of the work that they've done before. Mm. And and teaching has been shown to be one of the best ways to to not only solidify your knowledge, but also know and, and give yourself the confidence that you know it because you're able to teach it. Exactly. Yeah, nice. And and that's one of the reasons why we always recommend study groups and and study groups specifically for the MCAT where one person is good at one section and another person is good at another section. So you're teaching the other people and, mm -hmm. and just solidifying all that information mm -hmm. and, and having a great group of people. So exactly. Awesome. So what are the, the biggest struggles with studying with people either utilizing these skills or even before they come to you saying, help, I, I, I can't study very well. What, what are the biggest struggles for students? Well, like we talked about at the very beginning, I think time is always a huge issue um, because we're only allotted 24 hours a day and learning to use that time efficiently so you can study um, both efficiently and effectively mm -hmm. is really huge. That's, uh, once students get that under control, then everything else comes so much more easily. Probably next to that would be being systematic in your approach to your studies um, because most students uh, are not used to having a system because they've been smart and they've been able to get through um, just like I said on their native intelligence. And so that's often a struggle is incorporating new habits whenever part of their brain is telling them, but the old stuff has worked until now and they're having to <laughs> you know, rewire their brains to go, yeah, but everything has changed. I know we're still in school, but this is not school like we've experienced before. What are those barriers for for the efficiency and, and time management? What are some of the barriers that you've seen that students have in their life? Um, well, a lot of them are mental barriers um, to, to change, but I work with students who have faced all sorts of challenges that, that, most of us will never have to face. I, I mean, actually coming over out of uh, traumatic brain injuries and uh, then life circumstances of homelessness and things that are quite incredible that they've been able to overcome 
because of the way that they've talked to themselves, so the mind management part mm-hmm. and the determination that they have. In fact, one of the strat, uh, the requirements that students must have before I'm willing to work with them is they have to be motivated. Uh, because as you know, if you if you don't care as a student, how how is anybody else going to help you get where you want to go? So I think a lot of the internal dialogue is is a big part of it. How do they prove that motivation to you or to themselves? Part of it is by follow through. Whenever they say that they're going to do something, then they follow through and make uh, follow through on that commitment. Uh, there are some students that whenever I have appointments with them, you know they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. If you know if they're alive and breathing, they will make their appointment. <laughs> and there are other students that you know it's kind of a toss up. It's kind of fifty fifty. They may show if it's convenient. They may not if they got a better offer, and they may or may may not bother to you know reach out and let you know that they're coming or not. And those are students that I would call the less motivated. Uh, because I see less evidence of their commitment. Yeah. What do you recommend students do with their phones and with the internet? Because I see that as a huge barrier for students with always needing that dopamine hit of, did did I get any likes on my new Instagram post? Did anybody comment on my Facebook post? Do I have any any new Snapchat messages? Whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. And, and, And there's studies out there that are showing that even having your phone face down on the table in front of you is a big enough distraction to to cause issues. Actually, I've seen that research and they say that literally the farther the phone away is away from you, especially if it's not in your line of sight, mm-hmm. the less distracted you are by it. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's true for all of us, right? Because we all have our little phones with us all the time and are constantly checking them. So <laughs> I would say that that's not just a student issue. And I'm always asking students, what are they doing um, to make it less of a distraction for themselves? And most of them say, Um, Actually, what the research has shown is that they have to, first of all, turn it off, and second of all, put it in a different room. They can't even have it in the same room. And I have some students who say they'll like hide it from themselves. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you what you do when you need to find it again. Uh, sometimes they'll leave it in their cars. They'll lock them in their cars. So they have already come up with some strategies because they are, uh, if yeah, for those who are aware, they have come up with strategies or how to keep that from uh, interfering with what they're trying to do. Yeah, I, I always see, uh, obviously for what I do, I'm, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram and I have a very <laughs> a big Facebook group with pre-med students and uh, I am always concerned when I see a pre-med student out there and even medical students just on Instagram so much. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I hope that you are doing things as much as possible outside of this world. And I'm just seeing the the snippets where you're taking a little break and, and posting and doing stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I truly worry that that these devices are becoming a problem for efficiency and, and effective learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so while we're going to, if we want to go down that road and talk about it a little bit, uh, I have found it really interesting that whenever I survey my students, they still prefer uh, reading from their textbooks mm. than they do from any of their devices. Yep. And whenever I started looking at the research, uh, I'm glad to hear them say that because research is showing that we retain more whenever we are looking at a physical piece of paper in a book, you know, or their own notes than you do on our devices. That's interesting. What is the hypothesis behind why that happens? 
I'm going to tell you my hypothesis. My hypothesis is, and I often will act this out in class, I will hand a student to my phone and say, here you go. What do I want you to do with this? And they're like, uh, I, I don't know, uh, <laughs> you know take, take a picture of you, I read this text, what? And I say, okay. And then I will pick up a book and I will hand it to them and I will mm. say, so, what do you want? What do I want you to do with this? They're like, well, read it. You know, there's yeah. only one intent there. Yeah. So I really think that that uh, may be part of it is the intent, because there you can have a number of intentions with our devices because we can access so information, so much information. Uh, but given a print book or paper with some words written on it. Uh, the intent is different. You know, it, it brings up an analogy, the way that you you said that. It, the, the first thing that popped into my mind was uh, thinking about insomniacs and mm. the what is the intent of the bedroom and the bed itself. And if somebody mm-hmm. is having problems sleeping, a lot of times the first question is, well, what do you do in your bed, in your bedroom? And mm-hmm. well, I watch TV, I do this, I do that, and and the first thing is, well, get all of those things out of your bedroom. Mm-hmm. The, the bed is for sleeping and uh, other miscellaneous stuff with your significant <laughs> other. Um, and and it's, it sounds like the exact same thing, that you are training your body that bed is for sleep, books are for reading, phones are mm-hmm. for lots of things that are going to distract you. Mm-hmm, exactly. And actually, there is a conversation I had with a student in my office a few years ago. And I'll tell you the conversation. It actually ended up in one of my books. There's a little cartoon in there. A student was talking to a friend and she said, hey, I thought you were going to study in your room. The friend said, no, there's a problem. And she said, oh, what's the problem? She said, there's a bed in my room. <laughs> Yep. And so she knew she had to leave that space because otherwise the bed would be calling to her. But what some students do when they don't have the luxury of having another uh, location to study in is they will put physical, you know, visual barriers between them and other possible distractions like a bed that may be, you know, calling to you to just just for a minute, just come over here, <laughs> you know, yeah. lay down. Yeah. For the students, it sounds like there needs to be some level of self-awareness. Like, I know that if I study in my room, the bed is there, I'm going to have a problem falling asleep. I'm going to want to go put my head on the pillow. If I'm going to study at home in the living room, I know that when I hear that refrigerator kick on, I'm going to be reminded that there's food in there and I'm going to go see what's there to eat. How is a student supposed to become self-aware to know that these are traps that they're falling into? I developed a number of tools and exercises that if you go through any of our books, they're all workbooks. It's not just reading, but you actually do exercises to help you discover what those triggers may be for you. And until you're aware of it, you obviously can't do anything about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I often have students Um, who are feeling guilty or bad about past behaviors, I'll just say, hey, you didn't know. Uh, Now you know, though, and now you have a choice to make. Do you want to change things where you can uh, change that behavior? Or do you want to just pretend it's going to all be okay if you wish it to be? Yeah. And it's uh, now it's a problem. If they're aware of it and they Mm -hmm. still don't do anything about it, then they should be kicking themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. 
What are your thoughts? Uh, what seems to be very popular nowadays are apps or timing techniques, the, the Pomodoro technique, where you study for 25 minutes and slack off for five minutes or mm -hmm. whatever your ratio of time is. What are your thoughts on that technique? I've had a number of students who, um, who find that to be really useful. And in college, I think that it's okay for you to do the 25 minutes, five minutes. Uh, but at some point in time, you're going to need to learn to study for longer periods of time, and then you'll earn a longer break afterwards. Uh, but just because there's so much more information to get through as you go through college, and then, of course, that once you get into professional school, I think that there is a level of training for study endurance that needs to take place. And actually, my co-author, um, Jean Kelman, is a behavioral psychologist by training, and she came up with seven different factors that affect concentration. And we have those quizzes and exercises in the books that we've written together. And it's really quite brilliant because whenever we think of concentration, we talk about it like it's just one thing. Uh, but she's come up with seven different things that contribute to or can distract from your level of concentration. And I think that using those exercises can really help students uh, learn to focus and concentrate better. What are a couple of those exercises? They have to do with um, making sure you're awake and alert. So that could be like the location that you're in. And internal distractions is one of them. So if you have worrisome thoughts, uh, we would have one of the things you might do is write down what those thoughts are. So they'll quit swirling around in your brain and you'll have something uh, concrete to act on later. External distractions, again, we've talked about like beds or if you try and study at Starbucks, I don't know how anybody does that because it is so <laughs> loud when they turn on those machines. Yep. Um, so, you know, again, locations. Uh, one of them is your uh, mood or attitude control. As you go into a study session, if you're thinking, oh, this is so stupid. I hate yeah. this. It's oh, so boring. Then you're going to have a less efficient study period 100%. than if you go, you know, I need an A in this class. Uh, some people dedicate their entire lives to this topic. I don't know why, but I'm going to learn <laughs> as much as I can, and I'm going to do my very best. Oh, positive self-talk is one of those yeah. things. It's like, it sounds so woo-woo, but there's just so <laughs> much, there's so much evidence out there that it really does help. And and I, I use this with students like who who are struggling with physics or struggling with math, right? I suck at that. I'm like, no, don't tell yourself that. Mm -hmm. Just tell yourself that that you need to to figure out better ways to learn it or different ways to learn it or whatever it is, but don't tell yourself that you suck at it because guess what? It's just going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if this is true, but it makes sense to me that as our brain prunes information at night, if you have told yourself this is stupid, I don't know why I need to learn it, I hate it, <laughs> that's going to be like first in line to get pruned while you're sleeping, right? That's funny. Yeah, those 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 little carriers inside the cells are like, I remember Ryan was saying that he doesn't like this, so I'm just going to throw this away. <laughs> that's funny. I like that little analogy. I could see a little cartoon doing that. Mm-hmm. So, the the student out there who's going through the process now, maybe struggling in math, maybe struggling in physics, chemistry, whatever they're struggling with. Let's. I, I want to talk about efficiency. We we've talked about right finding how how to best use a student's time, and you talked about the the better best or good better best method of of getting in there. 
Um, do you know any data? I, I know there's data out there that shows that an eight-hour workday, the majority of U.S. employees are only really working about three. Uh-huh. For for students out there studying, especially medical students, where the majority of their day is spent studying, what sort of efficiency is there with their studying? Do you know any data on that? Not for medical students in particular, but for um, musicians, they have done the research on that. And what they've found for them is that really for full concentration, for stretching it maybe to six hours is really about all we can fully concentrate during a day. And so some of the other activities, um, just using that as a guideline, then I recommend that students do their heavy lifting during, you know, for that amount of time with breaks, obviously not, please mm-hmm. don't do it all at once, right? right. Take your breaks. Um, but then you do some planning on the front end, on the back end. You can do some lighter work like the pre-reading or maybe uh, some review or self-test. But if it's actually taking in a new information and you're trying to get that uh, solidified in your long-term memory, that we really don't have that many hours a day uh, where we can take in that information. So knowing that it needs to be spread out, right, because we already know that um, distributed practice is better than massed practice. And uh, just if they know that information, then they can plan their time so they can learn it and keep it for the long term. Do you buy into the fact that some students will say, I learn best at night or I learn best in the morning? And do you do you play into that for recommending study schedules? Um, I, I think there is something to that. And we need we need for students to not figure to figure out not just what their past habits have been, but what truly is best for them, because we could have habits that we do, you know, over and over again. And we mm-hmm. think that's what we do best. But it may not be. And so we actually have a concentration monitoring um, sheet where we have students monitor their levels of concentration throughout the day. And a lot of students are surprised to find that they concentrate better in the morning, even if they're not morning people. And I think that that's probably because after a good night's rest, you tend to be fresher And you don't have the weight of the day on you yet. Uh, You have the whole day ahead of you, and you're just in a a better state of mind often. And so that's been interesting for for students to report back to me. Well, you know, I I thought that my best time was at night, but actually I think maybe it's in the morning. And um, so there are, I think there are differences, but they need to be based, I would say, in reality instead of just in what your past habits have been. Past habits and what you tell yourself, right? Going back to that self-talk yeah. of, yeah. oh, I'm not a morning person. I'm like, well, you're just kind of telling yourself that, I think. Right. And if you if you went to bed at 2 and you got up at 6, <laughs> you're going to feel terrible, of course, right? Yeah. Yeah. So as a student who, who's on this journey and, and maybe has a variety of classes, maybe they're a liberal arts major, uh, also taking their pre-med requirements, are there different study techniques that they should be using based on different classes? Ooh, that is such a great question. Yes, as a matter, well, yes and no. How about that for an answer? Um, <laughs> different classes have different requirements uh, for how you're going to take in the information and then how it's going to be asked to be you know, taken back out for the exams. But certain classes do lend themselves to certain types of notes. 
So I always like to use anatomy and physiology as an example because in the anatomy, you're going to be making a lot of diagrams, right? And uh, probably category charts so you can learn the differences among the different types of things you're learning. But for the physiology portion, it's going to be tons of flow charts because of the processes that you're having to learn and the different things that take place. So yes, different classes are going to require primarily different note styles, even though we suggest that you always prepare before you go to class. Um, whenever you're reading, read that for, with a purpose, which is going to be to make some notes from it. And then you'll always review at some point, self-test, and then score and analyze that. Okay. What else are we not talking about that a student should be aware of or should know, should be doing to best maximize their studying to, to get the best scores possible in their, their undergrad classes, the MCAT, et cetera? We've only touched a little bit on the body management, but to me that's becoming apparent that it's so important because uh, of what happens while we sleep. That's when consolidation of information takes place, mm -hmm. puts, puts information in your long-term memory, and that only takes place if you've been through all the different sleep cycles. And uh, a lot of our students, and I guess Americans in general are not getting enough sleep, which is recommended, you know, between seven and nine hours. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some body care things that students sometimes think is a luxury that they can't afford when I think it's more of a necessity. Dehydration seems to come up a bunch when I'm looking at how to take care of yourself and dehydration mixed with a, a lack of cognitive ability. What, what sort of information do you know about that? I used to think it was just me until I read some <laughs> of the research. And uh, I realized that whenever I would get dehydrated, I would get fuzzy headed. And I just thought, oh, that's, you know, that's just you. And then I started reading that whenever you're dehydrated, you get fuzzy headed. I'm like, oh, it's not just me. <laughs> I think that is a huge part of it. And I actually had a student who was um, seeking medical advice and they had diagnosed her with migraines and she was getting ready to um, be put on some type of prescription for that whenever her mother and I at the same time intervened and said, are you drinking enough water? Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, uh, I don't know. So she tried that for about a week and she, she discovered that was actually the source. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I drink four Red Bulls and three cups of coffee. Does that count as water? <laughs> yeah. Please no. Oh, I, I wish I we banned those drinks, not coffee, but the other ones. Yeah, or in, and in moderation, right? Yeah. Because they've actually done the research. So here, let's let's go ahead and put this out there for the students. Uh, the researchers who look at caffeine and its effectiveness mm -hmm. have found that uh, actually a little bit uh, spread over the day is a better way to stay alert and awake without getting the jitters. And it's 50 milligrams, uh, and you can do that, 50 milligrams per hour until you're within six hours of whenever you need to go to sleep because of the half-life of caffeine is 5.7 hours. Mm. Uh, so they, you can take in a lot less coffee and still get your um, level of alertness without overdoing it. Nice. Yeah, caffeine's one of those things, just on a, on a personal note, like I don't, I don't drink coffee or mm. drink soda and I don't eat nearly enough coffee chocolate to get enough caffeine. Uh, I'd be a very large man if I ate that much chocolate. But um, 
and, and so I'm like, I, I'm currently looking into different caffeine supplements because caffeine has been shown to to help in a lot of things like staving off Parkinson's and other things that uh, my, my wife, who's a neurologist, was like, you need to drink coffee. I'm like, but I hate coffee. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm trying to see what else is out there for me outside of Red Bull and Monster and all those things. Yeah. Any teas or lots of I, I'm not a hot beverage person. That's the problem. Oh, okay. I, I, I like my bubbly water. Uh, that's okay. that's what I drink all day long. It's just uh, seltzer water. Uh, yeah. But yeah, some caffeine pills, I think, are in my future. Okay. Um, uh, but 50 milligrams an hour, I like that. I, I, yeah. I have a, a recommendation from the doctor. <laughs> oh, no, <this laughs> no, no, no. Advice. You know better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's talk about uh, students who... Uh, the majority of what we're talking about, I think, works great for a typical student who doesn't have any sort of learning disabilities, any diagnosed or unknown learning disabilities. For somebody out there who is struggling with this, potentially because they have dyslexia or some other learning disability, where should they start in this whole journey? Actually, it's been interesting to me to find that students in my workshops will often come to me later and tell me that they have been diagnosed with these um, uh, with these difficulties. And the strategies that we teach work well for them, too. You might want to do some extra things, uh, but all of these strategies are exactly what you need to be doing, too. And some of the extra things are things that are actually good for everybody, which is uh, eliminate classroom distractions by sitting closer to the person who's speaking, right? So you don't have so many people between uh, you and where you should be paying attention. And then also, if possible, avoiding sitting by someone who's using a computer because there's been some interesting research. It was actually done by graduate students that found that um, a person taking notes with a computer is not the most distracted. It's the person sitting next to them. Interesting. Isn't that? Because we're nosy human beings. Like, what are they doing? What are they typing? <laughs> what did I miss? Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Okay. So stay away from those computer people. Mm-hmm. Now, now everybody's going to listen to this and, and avoid the computer people and the computer people go back, what, do I smell today? I don't know. <laughs> well, actually, and for their own good, um, they could be taking their notes with pencil. Pen and paper. Pencil yeah. specifically, yeah, because they're yeah. getting a little bit of that kinesthetic feedback. And then they're also doing some processing that doesn't take place whenever you're um, playing scribe and just taking notes as the teacher talks yeah. on a computer. Yeah, and I, I've seen that. Uh, a, a lot of people um, will talk about, well, it's the, the physical writing down, but it, it seems to be that as more and more research comes out, it's actually the latter of what you mentioned of of actually when we're typing, because we can type a lot faster than we write, we don't tend to process anything. We're just trying to transcribe word for word versus writing with pencil, paper, pen and paper, whatever it is, uh, iPad and and pencil, iPad pencil, um, Mm -hmm. that we are actually thinking and reflecting and and trying to, to figure out what is the most important thing that I need to write down here. Exactly. And that's part of making the information your own, right? Mm -hmm. You're internalizing it, putting in your own words, and uh, that's shown to be something that helps put information in your long-term memory. Yeah which we, we always talk about flashcards, write your own mm-hmm. flashcards, come up with your own mnemonics, make them your own. Mm-hmm. Where can a student go to learn more about everything that you teach and read what you've written? 
Hmm. Well, I've written three books with my co-author, Eugenia Kelman, and I have um, a student-facing website, and I also have um, a faculty-facing website. My student-facing website is actually still under construction. Uh, we're hoping to get that uh, everything working on it this week, and it's called Study with Precision. And I came up with that name because I wanted to emphasize to students that if they want to be professionals, that learning to be precise in how they think and how they talk and then how they study is an important um, part of that process. And so on that website, I think all of our books are probably listed. The one we wrote for med students is called Study Without Stress. And then we actually wrote one for nursing students. I've spent a number of years working with students who are um, primarily RN-seeking nursing students called Vital Skills. And then just recently, because I've worked with pre-meds for a number of years, and they said, you know, we're not med students yet. We're not nursing students. Could you please write a book for us? And so that one's called Six Steps to College Success. And we kind of tried to broaden that one a little bit to include others in the STEM field uh, because these are strategies that will work for any motivated student uh, who applies them. What's your last word of wisdom for the the pre-med student out there who is potentially thinking about not going on to medical school because they've been struggling with with getting good grades and and figuring out their study habits? I want to tell them that uh, there is a way that if they will learn to be more precise, that they will see better results, that I would be delighted to work with them. And one of the greatest compliments that I ever have students tell me is that After working with me, they see a clear path forward and they feel hopeful because they know now that they have the skills and the tools to accomplish anything they want to accomplish. All right. There you have it again. That was Kathleen with studywithprecision.com. Now, if you want a chance to win one of her books, go to the blog post for this episode, medicalschoolhq.net slash three one seven and leave a comment with what you're struggling with with your study habits with your studying and we will randomly choose some winners to win a copy of her book all right that's it for this episode i hope you have a great week check back with us next time when we talk to lawson from atlantis about global healthcare experiences have a great week we'll see you next time (laughs) 